When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey, Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Discover. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. That means no waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey there, it's Stephen Dubner. Some of the Freakonomics Radio episodes we make have an agenda. That's the case with the one you are about to hear. We made it back in 2015 because I had noticed a disturbing trend in the interviews we do for this show, but also throughout the media, academia, politics, you name it. I was hoping this episode would not only call attention to the problem, but help solve it. Well, dear listener, we failed. We did not solve this problem at all, at least as evidenced by how often I still encounter it. So maybe this time around it'll work. Hope, they say, springs eternal. And if there's anything I have in abundance, it's hope. This is a nice short episode, by the way. Thanks for listening and let us know what you think. We are at radio at Freakonomics.com. We've been doing the show for a while now, and I've noticed a trend. Yeah, that's a great question. So, so that's a good question. That's a very good question. So, it's, good, it's a great question. Um, Look, I'm going to be honest with you. Most of the questions we ask, they aren't really all that great. But it's like there's a verbal tick going around. Well, you know, that's another good question. That's a really good question. Good question. Great question. Great question. Good question. So those are good questions. Good way to sort it out. And you know who has this tick really bad? You know, that's a great question. Yeah, Steve Levitt. You know who Steve Levitt is, don't you? So that's a great question. Levitt's my Freakonomics friend and co-author. He's an economist at the University of Chicago. Levitt, you've been at Chicago for quite a while now, haven't you? Uh, that's a good question. And you seem to think that when it comes to what makes a good question, absolutely no topic is off limits, wouldn't you say? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, it is true that people like their cows to have gotten to walk around a lot and eat fresh grass. So, Levitt, do you have any recollection of saying that same phrase about 150 (laughs) times? Is it something you know you're doing? Um, that's a good question. is Freakonomics Radio, the podcast that explores the hidden side of everything. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Whoa, 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 whoa. 
that's a great question. I've heard this over and over and over the last several years, not just on our show. You hear it in all kinds of media interviews, during the Q&A portion of tech conferences, academic conferences. But just because I've heard it a lot, that doesn't mean much. We needed professional help. My name is Erica Okrent. I'm a linguist. Okrent knows several languages. I speak about six at a faking it level. So I can go for a while and have you have you convinced until you bring up something I've never talked about before, and then it all falls apart. For the purpose of this discussion, we're sticking to English, and the phrase we're discussing today, that's a great question. I started looking into it. Has it really been on the rise? Okay, so how do you figure this out? It's kind of hard to measure that because it's hard to find a corpus of data that will show spoken language um, over time that way. You can't look for it in Google Books or something because people don't normally write this phrase. But Okrent was able to find a couple big collections of spoken language data. One of them is the British National Corpus. That's a 100 million word database, which includes transcripts of everyday conversation, as well as government meetings, media interviews, and so on. And I did a search on the phrase there, and it only showed up 35 times in, you know, a corpus of like 100 million words. And a lot of those instances were fiction, so it it wasn't too common over there. And then I took a look at the corpus of contemporary American English, and there it was over a thousand times. And most of the instances were interviews on CNN or NPR or or different um, one-on-one interview situations where there was an expert being interviewed about something. So it definitely seems to be more of an American thing. We're hearing from leaders in the House and the Senate. They both say they want to pass a bill by next week. The big question, what happens if they don't? Well, that's a good question. Does this bump hold up, do you think? That's a good question. That's a good question. That's a very good question. That's a very good question. Well, you know, it's a good question. Why has that not been enough uh, to get him off death row in Texas? This is a really good question. Okay, and where does Erica Okren think this habit has come from? In looking around for it, I found that it's actually an explicit part of media and PR training. I think it's still on the rise. That's Bill McGowan. He does media and PR training for CEOs, athletes, artists, even the best men at weddings. His company is called Clarity Media Group, and he wrote a book called Pitch Perfect, how to say it right the first time, every time. McGowan says that some people say, that's a great question, to serve as what's called a bridge. The bridge is what happens when the person interviewing you or asking you questions wants to go down one conversational road. You use it as a way to go from a potentially dangerous question back to your talking points, back to the point you want to make. You don't know anything about what lies in that road or you don't want to talk about that subject. You have a different conversational road you want to go down, so you need a bridge to get from one road to the other. That's a good question is one of the phrases that allow you to do that. You get the question, you say that's a good question, it buys you a little time, and then you just jump right in with the point you wanted to make. Um, And often people don't notice that you haven't dealt with the question or responded to the question. That's a really good question is the most elementary bridge possible. 
Now, when Bill McGowan says it's elementary, he means really elementary. I did a training for a nonprofit organization, and I had to role play as the interviewer with five or six of them. And there was one gentleman who sat in the chair, and he started every single answer with, that's a really good question, even when I asked him, so how long have you been with this organization? You know, Bill, that's a really good question. And I had to stop him and say, no, that's actually not a good question. That's a really terrible question. It's just a conversation starter. And he saw the absurdity of starting his answer with that. It was absurd because it had become such a habit that it lost its meaning. Nearly all of us have some kind of linguistic tick, some go-to phrase we probably don't even know we use. I, for instance, begin way too many sentences with so, as in, so what have we learned so far? Or so what McGowan is really saying here, or so even President Obama uses a verbal bridge. He has two words he uses that accomplish the same thing. One of them is look. Well, look, uh, you know, I think, Bill, that the, uh, uh, the nature of being president is that you're always... And the look means he's trying to convey it as, let me be frank with you. Or the other word he uses is... Uh- Listen, I, uh, as I think some of you saw when I was out listen. on the campaign trail. I'm and whenever you hear look or listen come out of the president's mouth, that means he is no longer answering your question. He is answering his question. But look and listen are not the only bridges used by President Obama. Well, Catherine, th- this is a great question. And, you know, I was raised by... So what exactly is saying that's a great question meant to accomplish? I think people do it because they think it accomplishes two things simultaneously. It allows them to stall for time, and it flatters the interviewer. It's for keeping the good vibes going. We're friends here. We're, you're asking good questions. I'm giving good answers. You keep the good feeling going. And things like, that's a good question. Look, the point is, what I'm saying is, all of these phrases are, they're meta-discourse phrases. They don't have to do with the content of the discussion or the things that you're talking about. They're about the discussion itself. And what they do is lay out a map or a path for the people listening to the discussion or the people involved in the discussion. So you say, ah, yes, the argument is, the point is, And you can do that, lay out these little pebbles when the discussion actually isn't going that way, but you give the illusion that this is what's happening. And when you're actually in the discussion, you get the feeling that points are being made and important things are being brought up and good questions are being asked, even if they might not be. In other words, as Erica Okrent sees things, it's linguistic BS. Any phrase like that They start somewhere, and then people pick up on it. People start using it sincerely. And if it works well, it starts to become a crutch or a tick. And then people start to notice it, and they start to hate it and complain about it. I believe that saying that's a really good question is about as outdated a tick or a strategy as telling people to envision the audience in their underwear. But not everyone has soured on the phrase. Coming up on Freakonomics Radio, Steve Levitt reveals another purpose it serves. 
I think that's one very strong piece of, of saying it's a great question is really just the acknowledgement that someone who's sort of in the background is actually doing something that's cool or interesting or, or challenging. And here's a question for you. If you do not follow Freakonomics Radio, don't you think you should? It's free. It's easy. On the Stitcher app, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, four out of five economists surveyed recommend the Freakonomics Radio podcast for people who listen to podcasts. We'll be right back. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, package lists, and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and over 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That hurtful comment your friend made, that frustrating thing your mom does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Therapy is a safe space to share whatever is weighing you down so you can get some relief and find a solution. BetterHelp offers professional, affordable online therapy on a flexible schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Freakonomics today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Freakonomics. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value. When it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on Cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on Cars.com. The media coach Bill McGowan thinks that people should just stop saying that's a great question. He thinks it's nothing more than cheap flattery or a stall for time. But some people do use the phrase strategically. Andy Kessler is a former hedge fund manager who now writes about technology and markets. In a 2015 Wall Street Journal column, Kessler wrote about a trick he admires used by Silicon Valley entrepreneurs at board meetings. When an investor or outside board member asks a stupid question, Kessler writes, the CEO says, that's a great question, and then gives the questioner an action item, something like, okay, can you survey the competition and report back on their capital plans and hiring ratios? Great, let's keep going. 
Eventually, Kessler writes, the stupid questions dry up and people who ask them may stop coming to the meetings. Okay, so you can use the phrase as a form of retribution, but Steve Levitt sees another use. I like to try to, in everything in life, try to reward the people around me and acknowledge when they say funny things or smart things or they look good or, you know, act kind or things like that. So as a general rule, I've adopted, especially as I've gotten older, to try to do really nice things to people as much as I can, especially if they're very low cost to me. I like to do nice things that don't cost me anything but uh, are good to other people. And so I think that's one very strong piece of, of saying it's a great question is really just acknowledgement that someone who's sort of in the background is actually doing something that's cool or interesting or, or challenging. Let me be clear on one thing. When it comes to saying that's a great question, perhaps saying it disingenuously, I myself am not innocent. When I'm on the other side of the microphone than I am now, I am a menace. Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, yeah, uh, that's a good question. So that's one of the Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, that's a really, really good and really hard question. I like it a lot. That's the kind of question that I would like to have thought to ask someone much smarter than me to see what they said. And I know where I caught it. I caught it from Steve Levitt. Maybe I invented it. Maybe I'm the inventor of That's a Great Question. I, I remember when I first heard you uh, say it, you were giving an academic talk, I think, at University of Chicago. You were discussing research of yours. And in an academic setting, especially when someone challenges either methodology or finding or data or whatever, I guess I expected that the first response would always be to just shout it down immediately and show why, no, I've already thought this through and here's why you're wrong and here's why I'm right. Because that's what you see so much in politics, right? Nobody ever acknowledges that the opponent has a valid point. But I remember you just saying, you know, that's a really good question and something to the effect of like, I wish I'd thought of that while doing my research, because, you know, it might be right, it might be wrong, but it certainly would have broadened my thinking on this. So that, I remember, is where I first heard it from you. I don't, I'm sure I stole it from somebody, but I, I can't, I can't pin my finger on who that particular genius would have been. Mm. All right. Well, Lev, I, I feel indebted to you because I feel it's, you know, if not valuable, then at least useful. And I use it now and again, and so I kind of would like to return the favor to give you something that you can use in certain circumstances. So here's the thing. Do you ever um, you ever have a circumstance where you're interacting with someone, maybe kind of in passing, and they say something to you and you don't quite catch it, or they say something to you that you don't want to have heard, but you kind of need to say something? Do you ever have that at all? You're yeah, all the time. All right. All the time. So here's what you say. You ready? You might want to write it down. Yep. You say rebus cassifram. Let me hear you say that. Say it one more time. Rebus cassifram. Rebus cassifram. Like more like one word. Rebus cassifram. Rebus cassifram. Good. Right. So 
that is a phrase that was invented by some genius. I don't know who. I do know where I learned to say this was from the former uh, dean of students at Dartmouth. And he was always getting in these conversations in passing where you had to have the response, but you had no idea what the person was talking about. They might have been talking about a relative of yours or a former encounter. Like, I can see you using this a lot. And you want to say something on your way out. You don't want to be rude, but you have no idea what the response is. If you say rebus acasifram, the human ear will interpret that in one of a hundred different ways and they will almost certainly think that you actually said something real when you didn't so <laughs> that's great i love that you're welcome i love that rebus acasifram that's it for today's episode which again first aired in 2015 it's episode number 192 and it's called that's a great question you can get the entire archive of Freakonomics Radio on any podcast app, along with the other shows in the Freakonomics Radio network, including the aptly named No Stupid Questions, along with Freakonomics MD and People I Mostly Admire. Steve Levitt is the host of that show, and he asks all sorts of legitimately interesting questions to legitimately interesting people like the Nobel laureate Danny Kahneman, YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki, and not just one, but both of the new hosts of Jeopardy, Mayim Bialik and Ken Jennings. That's People I Mostly Admire, available on any podcast app. Meanwhile, coming up next time on Freakonomics Radio. Well, that's what happens when you take an economist and lock him in front of CNN for three months, make him more and more angry. Is the news making you angry? Why? Is it more negative than it needs to be? It's next time on the show. Until then, take care of yourself, and if you can, someone else too. Freakonomics Radio is produced by Stitcher and Renbud Radio. We can be reached at radio at Freakonomics.com. This episode was produced by Susie Lechtenberg. Our staff includes Allison Craiglow, Greg Rippon, Joel Meyer, Trisha Bobita, Zach Lipinski, Mary Duke, Ryan Kelly, Brent Katz, Emma Terrell, Lyric Bowditch, Jasmine Klinger, Eleanor Osborne, and Jacob Clementi. Our theme song is Mr. Fortune by The Hitchhikers. Once again, thanks for listening. I'm tired today. I might not be so good. You're at your best when you're exhausted, I find. When you have no like conscious cognitive acuity and we go straight to the subconscious. That's what I like. The Freakonomics Radio Network, the hidden side of everything. Stitcher. There's a moment you realize you're ready for what's next in your career. Maybe it's when you're trying a new scone recipe and think, I could open a cafe. Or maybe you're helping a coworker and say, I could teach a course on this. Whatever your moment is, it's never too early to plan for a career that lives longer. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. For skills training, resume tips, and job listings, visit aarp.org work. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, Like that car riding your tail. 
Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.